Welcome back to episode number 130 of The NP Dude. This is Jeff The NP Dude, giving nurse practitioners a voice. Today's a special day. It's a, it's a special episode day for uh, The NP Dude. And the reason being is because I am going to be um, just doing a short introduction for um, a co-sponsored, co-published uh, podcast that was done by The N- NP Money Show, or The NP Money Show, um, and the MP dude and um, John Canyon was a big participant of that, and I want to just thank those guys. I want to thank Chris Woods and John Canyon for a great discussion and um, just spurring what I think is going to be a new movement in nurse practitioners' uh, future in in how we educate and practice and and get rip, uh, some credibility from the community and and medical community and other and and a lot of this is going to be. Um, new to me and a lot of it's going to be new to a lot of the other newer NPs and students out there of how we're going to go forward. So we're going to do this together. We're going to do it as a collective and uh, truly try to uh, incorporate as many of the good ideas as we can and do it as openly and honestly and out there for everybody to see what we're doing. So this the, the, the goal is that this is a collective um, and I think that John and Chris would agree with that as well. And we're not the only three that are going to be a participant of it, but we're the ones that are starting it. So we're going to start it on our terms. And then and then as things develop, we'll be opening it up into uh, um, a controlled manner to allow other people in and, and into leadership of this, this, uh, this movement. Um, not that we're trying to be the leaders and keep others out, but if we let everybody in at once, it's going to be too impossible for anyone to manage it. And we'll be fighting about little nuances, about things that at the end of the day don't propel us forward and it just wastes our time. So I hope that that makes sense. I hope that you guys understand that. And um, I'm not going to do any housekeeping today and I'm not even going to do an, an end to the podcast. So it's just going to go right from here and cut right into the audio from uh, our our fantastic conference call that we had together and so if you guys have questions comments concerns issues um, you can um, click on the link I'm going to put in the show notes and join the Facebook group okay so I'm, I'm Chris I am um, about to be a newly minted nurse practitioner in North Carolina and I am the host of the NP money show so that's me all right. Uh, next, I'm John Canyon. I'm a I'm a, a family nurse practitioner out of Texas, and I work uh, uh, ER now. I've done ER, critical access, urgent care, family practice, you name it. I've pretty much done it all. Hospitalist work, uh, and uh, uh, you may have heard me before on the NP Money Show. Boom. Awesome. I'm Jeff. I am the NP Dude, which is my own self-titled title. So. Judge whether it's really in the dude or not. But, um, my background is I am a licensed attorney. I'm a licensed professional engineer. I'm also a licensed nurse practitioner in family nurse practitioner. Um, I'm a relatively new FNP. I started about a year and two, three months ago in practice, doing family practice with a little bit of addiction medicine. Sweet. That, that being said, that's who we are, and um, what, what our intent for this show is to have a dual um, posting to uh, both the NT Money Show and the NT Dude podcast to raise awareness about um, poor education for nurse practitioners and maybe some, some uh, ideas on how we can improve upon that, I guess. So that being said, um, I guess, you guys, what, what is it that um, – 
you guys want to talk about it. Do you guys have any other issues? I know, John, it was your birthday just, what, yesterday? Yeah. Happy yeah. birthday, brother. Thanks, man. Happy birthday. Did you, did, you, did you recover from that okay? I, I did. I did recover just fine. Mom and me did some great pork chops, so, you know, can't, right. uh, can't argue with it. getting your favorite meal on your birthday, you know? There you go. I'm, uh, are you guys drinking any libations, or are you guys just uh, – just... Oh, yeah, last night, yes, not today. <laughs> not today? Okay. Well, I, I texted... That's why we had to wait till noon today to get this going because I couldn't, couldn't have made it before then, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Good call. All right, so I guess the, the, the podcast of, of the NT dude is to just help gain knowledge, but I think our intent today is to, to um, maybe come up with some solutions. And um, so what – what I've seen in posting is, um, on the Facebook at least, was relating to the consensus model and which is pulled into, yeah, some firestorm of consensus model. Thanks, John. Yeah, no problem. Well, you know, there's that, and then this, the, the base education changed even since I went through, and I've been I've been an NP since 2005. And when I went through family practice, we trained to be able to work in a rural setting, right? So mm-hmm. you had to do a little bit of ER, you had to do a little bit of, of hospital medicine, because when you work out in a rural setting, you're going to be doing that, right? That's all part of the family practice job when you're in a rural critical access type location. You're, you're working family practice, you're covering the hospital, you're covering the clinic. So we did all that. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's a great model to be, to be established. Now, my, my FMP program was just family practice. There, there was no acute at all. I mean, we didn't do really any. You know, we, we sutured a uh, you know ham hock, right? And that's, that's part of, of to, to me. That's part of the problem with with the consensus model, right? They're trying to pigeonhole F and P's just into uh, into a family practice setting, and that's it. And the reason I think they're doing that is, I'm, yeah, I'm not really sure because it doesn't line up with actual practice, right? Actual yeah. practice, 80% of the of the NPs in, in the emergency department are family, right? And what yeah. the consensus model says is that urgent care and family practice, and excuse me, not family practice, urgent care and ER needs to be acute care NPs. But the problem with that is when you get into that setting, you, 40 to 60% of your clientele is in the pediatric population, and they can't do it. That's right. By base of their of their restrictive population, they just can't do it. So the consensus model was trying to force us into dual certification to be able to do anything. Right. Now, yeah, well, when I, I'm sorry, go ahead, Chris. Well, I was just I was just going to kind of piggyback on that. So um, I am 53 days out from graduation, and because of exactly what um, y'all are saying, I've actually had to do both certifications. Um, at at once because of the because of the consensus model. So I've had to I've had to take all of my acute care classes alongside of my family practice classes solely so that I could work in the ER and in urgent care. But in reality, if you take the the consensus model to its full end, um, I, I I shouldn't be able to work urgent care or or ER because you I would technically need to have my pediatrics. Uh, acute care nurse practitioner as well. And so, <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's crazy. Like, it's crazy. Right. Or to layer it one more layer is, what's, where does the emergency NP certification come in? Well, so, the yeah. saddest part about that right now is the EMP certification does not exist in the consensus model. 
I know. Yeah, so just, your ENP certification, which you know the American Academy of Engineering Practitioners is working on getting into a part of that, but it's just not. The problem is the consensus model is just not a good document, right? It's not something we should be pursuing and following. And the problem is, is, is our academic, our academic group has separated from the reality of practice, right? And instead of changing, changing academics to meet the reality of practice, we're trying to square, square peg round hole with right. the consensus model, you know? I mean, you've got urgent cares are all family practice right now. Excuse me, not all. 90, 90-95% of NPs in, in urgent care are also family practice. But right, right. They're looking at, and then here's the other thing, right? This is the problem with the consensus model. Who can work for a general surgeon? According to the consensus model, it's only acute care. But general surgeon is going to see pediatric population, too, do a lot of appendixes, right? Right. And your acute care can't be involved in those cases. So what yeah. you're doing is you're, you're mandating the consensus model, the way it's set up, is going to end up mandating multiple certifications. And here's the end, end of the day, okay? If you, if you add every search you add on that we have to do, you're adding length of time to school, right? Yeah. So if I'm adding length of time to school and the end result is uh, four or five years of school to get all these certifications to be able to even practice according to the consensus model, why not go to PA school or go the MD route? Yeah, that was my thought was why not just go to PA school? I mean, so go to PA school and you get a, a generalization, right? But so, let, let me ask this question. Is there anything from the consensus model that you feel still has some applicability? I, actually, I do. I do think that, that uh, the certifications, the, the specialty certifications are a good idea, right? I, I really do. I think I that if you're going to be working in, in, in the hospital, having, having acute care is beneficial, okay? Do I think it's necessary? Not necessarily. And the reason I say that is because there's no statistics that back up the, the consensus model at all. There's nothing that says that FNPs fail in an inpatient setting, right? That being said, I also think that the DNP is a is is a failure as far as a clinical setting. I think a better route for us to do would be have a base degree and have our um, our uh, uh, our specific certifications: acute care, neonatology, um, um, nurse midwife, uh, CRNA. Um, acute care, ENP, that kind of thing, be a doctoral ad. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so instead I, of getting your, you get your base, whatever, FNP or, I mean, I so guess I, if you wanted to split it, you could split it into, into PD. And then as your doctoral, be, that be your specific go, specific additional certification, right? But it would expand, not limit your scope. Exactly. Right, and it's not necessarily expanding either; it's specializing, right? Yeah, just getting. So yeah, I guess like you get your MD, and then you go to residency in ER. You go to residency in internal medicine. You go to residency in uh, so, neonatology. Does that make so, sense? Yeah, but as a physician, if you aren't certified in a specific area, what are you permitted to do? Uh, well, it depends on the state you work in, actually. There's actually a lot of guys that don't have um, residencies who still can work as MDs in specific states, okay? You're going to get a lot of blowback from the MDs. Oh, that's not true. Well, it is true in some states, right? You don't have to have completed a residency in order to, in order to work 
some states you do, right? Now, this is really going to depend on the population of MDs and how much, how much. Yes. Uh, but that's that's a whole different topic, which is kind of we're kind of well, skewing off off course. But we have a base thing, right? Yeah. Base. Uh, well, here's the thing, right? And I'm going to use the PAs because they're kind of a mirror of our profession. Unfortunately, it's reality. Um, we both uh, work in a similar function. Okay. Both work in similar roles most right. of the time, right? So they, they have a generalist training, and then they get their additional training from whomever they work with, right? Mm-hmm. And they call that postgraduate training, right? Which as NPs, we used to do that before the consensus model. You got your degree, and then you got postgraduate additional training in order to specialize in whatever area you're in, right? Mm-hmm. For instance, Right now, as of right now, to work orthopedics, you get family nurse practitioner, and then you go and you train with an orthopedist, right? You work with him until you're trained, and then you and then you get you work in the OR, you first assist things like that, okay? And do the clinic work, and then you do joint injections and knee injections and aspirations and and trigger point injections, et cetera, and that's all part of the aspect of training underneath the orthopedist, right? As of right now, in the consensus model. Nobody can work for orthopedics, right? And if we continue down this path, I think what our end result is, either one, you're going to need three or four certifications in order to work, or two, there's just going to be fields that aren't open to us. If our detractors go against uh, and pick the consensus model and look at it and say, hey, look, as an NP, you can't work in orthopedics. As an NP, you can't work in general surgery. As an NP, you can't work in neurosurgery. As an NP, you can't work urgent care unless you have multiple certifications. So I guess this might be a good point to just point out to people that are listening. There's a lot of new NTs that are either in school finishing up or have just graduated that listen to my podcast. That tends to be the majority of the people that listen. Um, so for those that are not familiar with the consensus model, maybe it's a good good point now to break in and describe a little bit about what that is. Um, and, and I can kind of talk a little bit. I've talked in the past on my show about um, – the um, what's the collaborative state one where it goes between the states? There's only three states. <laughs> oh yeah, the uh, the, the compact states, right? Yeah. yeah. So the first thing, compact is a is a statute that's proposed by an organization so that everybody in the in the country could adopt that, and it would be a unified set of statutes that all the states could. could of easily transition from one state to another to allow across the state lines. That's the same intent with with the consensus model. It's proposed legislation by an organization that has no authority that states can or cannot adopt. Okay, so consensus model is not true law out there, but some states do have a tendency to follow it. One of the things that I've noticed that, that has been a fight recently, in fact, the thread that we were Getting, uh, I, was, I was getting involved in just recently with you, John, and you were blocked on some of that. <laughs> but discussion about um, the new Florida rule that says that APRN, and this person was, in, you know, just infuriated by the, you know, having RN in their title, um, and, and that APRN language is part of the consensus model to increase um, or unify across the, the country the names that we all use. And so I, I don't necessarily disagree with that philosophy of, of a unification um, that the consensus model intent is. If you go look at some of the um, 
the sales pitches that are out there for consensus model. There's a bunch of videos on the, the uh, AACN, and there's, uh, I don't know, there's a bunch of different organizations that all participated in this, and you can find links all over the place to the consensus model. All these vi videos are wonderful. they got the great, you know, background 1990s music behind it, and <laughs> cheesy, you know, don't, don't sexually harass your coworkers' music. Um, it's the same. It's the same type of cheesy, you know, documentary about how wonderful it is and how it's going to make the world a better place. And and um, I, I don't necessarily disagree with that, but I think that John, you're right in that it jams us up a little bit on how we're doing this multiple certification crap. Where if we would just get a better base degree for everybody, then I think that all of this would go away. Yeah, and, and the problem is. We're also not. We're also not as a as a as a profession. Our our national certifying organizations and our national bodies that are supposed to support infant practice, they're not addressing the problems, right? The problems that our detractors are are, are every time we go up to do a, a full practice authority in a state, which is a new term we use instead of independent practice, is, hey, these, this is the problems we have with what you're doing. All right. What are you going to do about it? Well, you know, this is this is why we don't want to do this, right? And one of the one of the things is they use uh, online education, which is you know, you know, whatever. That's fine. I'm, I'm going to have a problem with online education. I think if done properly, it can be done done well. The problem is is they also bring up the number of hours, right? Right. And the number of clinical hours is a problem. Some NP programs as low as 600 hours, which is ridiculously low. That needs to be standardized. We also need to standardize our education. <clears throat> I mean, we have people who, another thread, or multiple threads, don't know how to document, right? And it's not their fault. It's a lack of education in that aspect that needs to be there. I mean, these people are being so well-trained on APA format, which is something they'll never, ever use again in their career. Right. Yeah. I mean, even with publication, you don't need APA format, Right. Right. It's Correct. not required to publish, right? It's right. not required at all, although some people will mislead you to believe that it is. It is not required to publish, and you, it, be honest, it's, it's a unification for writing papers in an academic setting, right? And it gives people something to count off for. Now, this is not an attack on any, any individual or any person, but lots of institutions utilize that in order to separate grades on papers and use it as a large portion of the said grade when it reality situation, I could use zero APA format on my paper and it should be no less than 5% off. I mean, I could handwrite it and it should be no less than 5% off, okay? The reality of the situation is the content of the paper is more important than the style it's written in, okay? Using APA format is allows the professors to have a guide which they can look at a paper and make sure it follows a guide to make sure that you have the appropriate uh, uh, references and that you're referencing appropriately, and um, that's okay. But we're not we're not English majors, man. We don't need to be doing that. We need to be learning how to document in the chart. So yeah. there's a, a couple of things with my background that I, I think, since we're kind of at this point here talking a little bit about education, that, that I, I want to point out that's different in nursing than the other professions that are out there. One of the things that I found that just baffled me when I went into undergrad nursing was the fact that you got a rubric <laughs> for anything, right? 
So when, when you go into you know, engineering and they say, here's your project, here's all the requirements you have to do to get an A, here's all the requirements that you, you know, if you don't want an A, then we'll start taking points off. There was no guidance. And I think that, that the um, dumbing down of the process by giving, um, you know, you have uh, 10 points for an introduction, have to say these things, and this and that, and it, it just, it dumbs down the profession and it, and it teaches to the lowest common denominator. Yeah. And I think that philosophy um, is being done so that they can push through people that maybe shouldn't be pushed through. Yeah, well, there's yeah. definitely so some of that. And, well, sure. and that's that's one of the things I was going to say about the consensus model. I think that originally, I think that the the profession itself had had some nurses that were just absolutely like stellar, over the top. They could get through NP school and be able to survive in any environment, just like John was talking about. But I think right. that because of the poor. Uh, job that academia has done, and in, a, in an attempt to um, sort of help people along, what they've actually ended up doing is hurting the profession by by advancing students that that shouldn't have gone. And, and because of that, consequently, they said, "Oh well, I, we realize that we put these these nurse practitioners out in the real world, and and they're not doing so well. So we're going to have to make them focus their education in." acute care for the adult gerontologic population. We're going to make them focus their education in specific to pediatric, acute care, whatever, um, so that they can have even a level to be able to function out in the real world. Um, so I, I, I would agree with you, Chris, if they care. All right? My, my fundamental flaw here with that argument is that that I think it's more nefarious than that. And I'm a cynic to begin with about, about institutions. I think it's all about the money. I really do. I, I agree with you 100%. 100%. And it's the nursing administrative uh, or the, the nursing dean. It's just, it's the whole, the whole university is putting pressure. We need to increase revenue. We need to keep these kids here longer. Kids being, you know, I'm, I'm a kid. I'm, I'm 43. I'm still a kid. I don't care. Yeah. Right? Um, so, so there's a drive to keep people in school longer to generate revenue, and I don't necessarily think that's the case, and I think that they're doing a disservice because they're doing for that reason. So the question of the day is how the heck do we change that? Because I think the answer, in my opinion, and, John, just from reading some of your posts and, and knowing you through Facebook and whatnot, um, I think you would agree that the fix is we got to fundamentally change the education for nurse practitioners so that it's better. Yeah, <laughs> what yeah the I agree with that. I agree with that. I, my, my, I made a post that said, I firmly believe that my one, year, my one semester of pharmacology, my one semester of assessment, and my one semester of pathophysiology in nurse practitioner school to go out and prescribe medicines and treatments was not enough. Yeah. Just wasn't. And so when, when you look at the current standards for a certification of nursing schools, my dog's about to start barking. What are you looking That's at? Right. He's looking at something outside. I have no idea. Um, when you look at what the AACN requires, it requires those three things. And, oh, by the way, you just have to have some nursing theory, some research involved, and some, you know, th that kind of stuff, advanced practice role, that kind of stuff. But that could be shortened down into a one-semester class or be one lesson, you know, a two-hour lecture on advanced practice because they don't do it well anyways. So skip no. it. 
physiology, pathophysiology, pharmacology, and assessment, and then get my ass out where I'm going to learn in the, in the clinical setting. Well, we actually had a, I had a, a distinct advantage when, we, when I went to school. We, uh, our pharmacology class and our pathophysiology class actually coincided, okay? So we took those classes together, and what right. happened is when you were studying um, cardiology and pathophysiology, you were also studying cardiology and pharmacology. I made that exact comment to the instructors in my courses. So you, you, what you're doing is lining up. Now, the pharmacology book, we were all over the place, right? We do chapter 3, then chapter 22, then chapter 6, then chapter 40, you know, just kind of bounced all over to match, to line up with, with the pharmacology because that way you're studying the same thing at the same time. It is, right? Context. Oh, it's, it's way easier to understand that way, right? Because you're double, you're, you're double, you're double studying the same information because you have to in order to pass the class. Another problem we have is, is we just don't fail people, right? I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have, I've had students in the past as in clinical rotation, not, not as a professor, right? That, and, and I have failed to students as a professor, but it's, that's a different deal, right? And, and clinical students in a clinical rotation where I've called the instructor and said, hey, this person's not making it. They're not learning. I've had them for 300 hours a semester. They, I, I can't give them a passing grade. I'm sorry. And they pass them anyways. Mm, right. Well, they want the money to go on and keep passing them, and then they graduate. And I know this because this is the person's last semester, and they were in no way prepared to work. No way. So the the problem there is the the standardization for the, the nursing schools is is administered by a group or organization that is run by the deans of all the universities. Exactly. So it's, it's the the you know the, the fox is guarding the hen house. <laughs> and, you know, how do we, how do we get rid of that? And, and I don't yeah. know if, it, yeah, but, so John, I guess you've been around the longest. And I, I don't know if there's, you know, we've, we've kind of toyed with the idea of starting a Facebook group. We've, we've toyed with the idea of starting in our own organization and just saying, you know what, let's, let's build it and then see if anybody follows. Um, and if we start to get some traction with it, then, then with numbers, we can have strength. And so exactly. that, I think that's a viable option. But at the end of the day, if the people that have the money, which are the students or the government with student loans, is is still paying tuition, um, we're we're an outsider. How do we break into that? Do you have any ideas or thoughts and on how? I, there's there's a couple. The first thing is is, is we've just got. I mean, I, I don't think we're going to be able to do it without without forming an organization of some kind in order to attack this because. We have there. There are practice organizations out there like the AANP, et cetera, but they don't address this, right? Or they don't recognize the the direction we're heading in as a problem, right? So this is, and I don't know if that's because all these organizations are run by professors, or if they if it's a greed thing. I'm I'm assuming there's a, there's a greed component. I don't know that for a fact. I can't prove it, but. I mean, I, I, I just look at this. I look at the direction we're heading and seeing it as being self-destructive, right? If anybody who's not in our profession looks at the consensus model and actually understands it and reads it, and we can't do anything, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you, you and what their their consensus is that family practice can't see acute patients, right? That means acutely ill patients, okay? You're not trained to handle acutely ill patients is what they're saying, which that in, in, in my, 
My interpretation of that says if you have a patient who's sick that walks into your clinic, you can't see them. That's, 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 that's the interpretation, and there's no good yeah. definition on it. Leave it open no, for no, and, it's, and, it, and there is no – you're right. There is no definition on it, and I understand leaving stuff intentionally vague. I get that, but, but when it's so vague it. that it leaves, leaves gaps, you, you like, can't do that with model legislation. Yeah, model legislation has to be exact, and I've talked about that on my show, too. If there's, if there's any vague or ambiguous statute, it is always challenged. Here's one that's going on in Ohio right now, and it, it's subject to debate, and everybody keeps sweeping it under the rug. And, and to be honest with you, I've been told don't mention it because it could be a problem for me personally. <laughs> so I'm going to mention it. I don't care. Right? So here's the way the rule reads, ambiguous. And then you guys tell me what you interpret it to mean. A physician can contract with five prescribing NPs at one time. Tell me that interpretation. Chris, what do you think that means? Well, I mean, to me it sounds like one physician can have up to five NPs that he's responsible for reviewing, charts, whatever. Right, that's, that's how I that. it as well. Yeah. That's, not, that's not how I interpret that at all. Exactly. So there's a it's all which side of it. Here's the, here's the thing. What that what that means is he can he can supervise five that are writing prescriptions for him. Yes. At if one you're not, if you are not writing a prescription, you can have up to twenty, right? That's exactly so right. If I have if I have um, if, for instance, if, let's say I'm a, I'm a hospitalist, right, and I have 20 NPs who just go around and do HMPs and discharge summaries, I can have 100. In which case, you don't need a collaborative agreement in Ohio because you're not prescribing. Yep. So, I right? can, so that takes that move. But the point being is that you could have two dozen people working on your staff with collaborative agreements as one physician, but as long as at that Given second, they're not signing their name on a prescription pad or hitting the, the electronic EHR go button. Okay, oh, that's a good thought. So you okay. could have you could have five working one week and then a different five the next week, right? Exactly. Yeah, you could have a hundred of them. Yeah, you could have an infinite number of people contracted with, as long as at any one second, this exact moment in time, you could have a dozen working that day. Yeah. And the statistics of them hitting the go button at the prescription at the exact same timestamp is pretty low, right? So who's tracking that? So that's that's part of the problem. So what, what we're seeing in Ohio is a large um, – the Ohio Medical Association is backing several people, and this is behind-the-scenes stuff. I'm not going to get too deep. But they're um, – there's a push from physician legislators that are taking advantage of that opportunity to be a legislator and just getting um, thousands of dollars per contract per year, um, and they're having hundreds of them. Yeah. Mm. Okay? So a nice retirement off of the facts of MPs and, and stifling the competition on the other end because they're legislators. So talk about conflict of interest, right? Oh yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, so, so so here's the real so here's a real issue for us specific to today. If we've got one, namely the educational system at large, who because of greed, whatever, are um, dumbing down the profession, suppressing um, the profession by advancing 
poor, poorly uh, trained graduates. And then you've got physicians on the other hand saying we don't want them to be independent because we're making some coin off their back. Then uh, well, there's I mean, but, but, you know, that's not even the whole, that's not even their argument though. That they're just protecting their 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 income there. The, the argument is lack of training, right? And the argument is online, right? Online we can defeat because, I mean, MDs don't, don't spend any time in the classroom anyways. I mean, except for um, a gross anatomy and labs and stuff like that. From lecture hall, they don't go. They, no, they, they don't have go. have a lecture service, right? So it's the same thing, right? Yeah, right. The flip side is, is are we having online lectures? Chris, you're the most recent graduate. Did you have, or, or soon to be graduate, did you have online lectures that you had to log in and listen to? Uh, I, I did for a, a, a few classes that are on the, the fringe there. My, my program's a brick and mortar, so I had to go to attend lectures for the most part. Oh, okay. So you're, you're brick and mortar. So never, yeah. you're, you're outside of that. The, the, the online stuff that I'm seeing, and this is just through students hearing, not, not what I've personally been involved in, there's been no online lectures to look at, listen to, that kind of deal. Okay. It's been, it's been online discussion boards, right? Right. Not, 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 not ever been proven to be helpful education wise, right? I, in fact, I think it's detracting to the system. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a problem. It's, right. And then not only do you have to, you have to respond to these discussion boards in a certain time frame per week, you also, to, to get a, that's they're grading you on, by the way. They're not grading, I mean, that's a whole other story. It's the participation grade, and that's a, that's a whole other story. But, you know, you, you've got these, and they have to be in APA format, right, <laughs> which is ridiculous, okay? When your discussion, I mean, if you had, why not, if you're going to have a model like this, at least make it useful. Make Give me a patient. Here's your patient. A uh, 20-year-old male presents with sore throat, fever, cough, congestion. Here's the vital signs. I want you to write a note. Right. Yeah. Okay. Write me a note because then I'm, I get that. That makes sense because I'm gonna be doing that the rest of my life. That's I exactly. need to understand how to do that. Right. You do it effectively, I mean, efficiently because, and they should they should start putting time limits on those things in school too, so that people start to. If you have a day to write a soap note, because you're right. APA format, you're never gonna get to the point where it, it took me six months of practice before I'm like, oh crap, now I have to get how to do it fast. And therein lies the problem. You know, you know, you know what part of my, part of my training actually. God, I hate to go back to. I'm the old guy in the room, but <laughs> I mean, we walked up, you know, both ways through the snow with a typewriter. <laughs> That's what I feel like I'm saying every time I do this. But that was part of our training. We had to actually in class write a note, and you had to write a note in class. And in the last 20 minutes, you had to turn in a note. Right. Okay. And then. You know, you, 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 we actually had to document on patients whilst we were in, in, uh, in clinic or in the hospital or in the ER, we had to actually write out a note on patients and turn them in. And See, now, I, this I, ambiguous, yeah. uh, the way they're doing it now where you just do uh, age and a chief complaint and a diagnosis or whatever that you're putting into some random thing. Where yeah, I'm doing that right now. The problem is, is in, yeah, you're, you're, you're doing, you're not, you're doing a disservice. I mean, I understand from a uh, credentialing standpoint for, for the university that they have to have that and that's a requirement now. But instead of doing that, how about have the person turn in five actual notes per, for the day?
that would make more sense to me because then I'm actually able, as an instructor, able to go, hey, man, you're listing 64 items on your review of systems. That's going to be – you don't have time for that. But there's no way for for a, a sick sore throat visit you need to do 64 ROSs. Okay? Yeah, <laughs> you're you're just wasting your time. Okay, go hit the main points, hit the hit the pertinent negatives. Okay, and then do all other negative except as as re, as John, listed it above. That brings up a good point, John. One of the things that I I I was it was hammered into my brain that you do all of that for every note, right? Because you had to know at least. Broad spectrum, okay, all of the topics of the review system and all of your assessment have to be there, and you're turning in one or two soap notes a week instead of five a day. But in reality, it took me six months, and I'm a fairly intelligent person, to untrain my brain from that model to practice well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a problem, problem, problem. And it's it, it, you know, also get your efficiency, right? So why don't we feel that from the – I mean, we're, we're working in a medical medical model. Regardless if people want to say you're a nurse and you have a nursing philosophy and your care should be that of a nurse first, and then, oh, by the way, um, certain individuals that are in women's health say that we are nurses and we are not medicine. And I say that too, we, if you've listened to my podcast, people, you know I'm, I say we're both. We do both. And and um, so why don't we mandate that we follow a, you know, why don't we get a, an ex-professor from some medical school that kicked ass to come in and say, here's how you run a, a nursing school doing the medical model? Here, here's the problem with that, right? The problem with that is you're going to get, you're going to get blowback from the nursing professors, okay? He, the, our, our issues are, our, our issues are out there. I mean, every time we go to legislation for FDA, the issues are the same. Not enough clinical time, right? We not consistent training, right? And here's the, here's the deal, right? There was this there was this report that came out in medicine, uh, 1900, called the Flexner Report. Right. Yep. Revolutionized revolutionized medical training, right? And the comment you didn't see about that that was part of that discussion that you were blocked from, John, was that. Um, why are we trying to um, analyze us like medicine? And my response was, it's not that we're analyzing us, comparing us to the Flexner report. We need our own Flexner report for nursing to be able to point at it and say, this is failing, this is working, let's figure out how to make it so that it's more unified and done. Absolutely. And I think that the intent of the consensus model was that. But I think that it was—it's just a poor—it's just a poorly done document. It's, it's well, but, it's a, but think about it this way. And I'm not going to go as harsh as saying it's—it's poor today. Maybe maybe 15 years ago, when the concept was being developed before its publication, because it was published when it was like uh, 10 years ago. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's give the benefit of the doubt and say that at the time, it wasn't as bad as it is today. I don't know if that's a fair statement, but I'm going to say, just for the sake of argument, so I'm not stepping on toes saying you guys suck, and <laughs> you in the past that that tried to develop a model, you didn't know which way it was going to go, and you thought that was the best at the time. Hooray for you. You, you tried your best, but we know better now. Let's adapt and change. And, and yeah. we're up a model that, you know, let's face it, 20 years ago, a lot of nurse practitioners didn't have prescriptive authority. 
Yeah. Well, here's yeah, the other true. thing. You know, 20, 20 years ago, you know, we did not have the acute care geriatric was not one one track. You understand that, right? Acute right. care yeah. was one track, and and gerontology was another. And the reason that they combined them, and 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 part of that is, you know, it's part of that's the consensus model, but part of it also is, is acute cares and, and geriatric NPs just couldn't find jobs. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. They couldn't get jobs because family practice was was able to go into every setting. And that's and that this is that was the response to that, right? Instead of instead of going, hey, look, you know, we and also the DNP, but that's a whole another topic. Right? We, need, we need a clinical doctorate, right? And a clinical endpoint in revamping the system and in standardizing everything so we have a set path to where this is what you do if you want to be an ERNP. You can work in there as family, but realistically, we think you need a doctorate. Doctorate. We think you need extra education in order to fully thrive in that in that setting, and we think you need an emergency nurse practitioner. Okay, but that in order to get that, you have to have your family first, so you right. have your foundation, and then the doctorate training for clinical for an emergency nurse practitioner is two years, four thousand hours. Okay, because okay. the average full-time job is 20, 40 hours a year, right? So right. If, we do, if we do two two years in the ER, you should be sufficiently trained in order to so, practice in the ER in, in that setting when you're done. Or let's say I want to work in family practice. So I get my base so, family practice, and then I have a doctorate in family practice afterwards. Make well, sense? So I, I, think, I think current, current pushback push to that would be, oh, well, that's why we're creating NP residencies. That, that's going to be the push. I don't, I don't agree. I, I think that the, the NP residencies are being created for monetary gain. Oh, I agree. I, just for the record, the value of what you're getting out of this is the education you're learning in your residency. And a lot of them, there's only three or four that I've looked up that were, like, legit. All the other ones are, hey, we can have a hospital system, create this residency, and we could get cheap-ass NP free labor to do h and all day long, and, you know, we can go golfing, whatever. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, think, I, think, I think part of that, guys, is the reason the residencies are coming up is because in response to the, quote, lack of training, right? Lack of clinical time. But right. if you have 2,000 hours in your master's and then 4,000 for your doctorate, that's 6,000 hours training, right? Yeah. Once you get, once you, I mean, you, I mean, you got said it, you said it yourself. It took you six months after you were done a full-time work in addition to the number of clinical hours you had in order to get there, right? Right. And that, I mean, clinical hours, what y'all do? A thousand, fifteen hundred? I didn't have to do that. I played 100. That's all I needed. I had 700. Oh, jeez. So I know. You're looking at another another 1,000 to 1,500 hours added to that, which brings us to the 2,000 mark, which is what I think it should be, right? Yeah. Now, in family practice, in all justification, in all fairness, in true family practice, I don't know if you need that many more hours. Well, I I would, I would just from the standpoint of training, right? It's all about training. Even if you made it 1,200 to 1,500, I'd be okay with that too, right? I really think the, that the response, right? The response is standardization of hours, right? And part of the problem, I think, for family practice, you need you need more hours 
is not just for family practice. I think you need an ER ER rotation. I think you need an urgent care rotation. I think you need a surgery rotation. I think you need an orthopedic rotation. And the reason I think you need those things is because it makes it easier when you see those things come into your clinic that you recognize the problem and recognize the difference of what needs to be seen and doesn't need to be seen and what needs to be shipped out and when you need to ship it out. And all those kinds of things make your life easier as a makes you a more well-rounded practitioner. Hell, spend some time in dermatology, spend some time in radiology. All those things are, are, are courses that we need to have that we're not getting. Instead, we're spending a full semester on theory. And God knows I, I'm, I, I actually do have a theory that I practice by, but it's my own, right? Yeah. And to understand me, you understand this. There's three pillars to practice, right? like a tripod of a stool that you're sitting on, okay? And one is the science. You learn that in school. One is the business, which they don't teach at all. That's right. And one is the art, of art, right? So if the science, if you're going out there and uh, writing antibiotics for everything, blah, 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 poor practice, you're going to get sued, you're going to fail, right? The business aspect, if you're not seeing enough patients to cover your cost, the cost of your salary and what it takes for you to operate, you're going to fail. You're going to close. You're going to lose your job. I've had people contact me on Facebook and say, hey, I'm seeing eight patients a day, and I got fired. I don't understand. Well, I'm seeing eight patients a day. It's not enough patients to, to cover the cost of your own salary and the salary of your MA and your and your, uh, and your front office staff, et cetera, in the building. I mean, you just can't you can't afford that, right? So, and then there's so the all art, that, art of practice, that. right? And the art of practice is is understanding that you need to hold uh, hold Mrs. Smith's hand because her her husband died last week. So you got to spend 20 minutes in the room holding her hand. If you do those things, then you'll be successful. If you don't, then you'll be unsuccessful. The good thing you just hit on in that last that last leg there is is the thing that distinguishes us distinguishes us from the medical community. So I'm not saying we get rid of that like to scout it. It's just as important as nurses that we keep that. But it doesn't take four advanced practice classes on how to be a nurse. Yeah. In your in your masters, when you just went through a four year one of a bachelor's degree to get that. No, that's a whole other conversation too. Right. So I, mean, I think if you get the you get research and theory in your bachelor's, and you have to turn around and repeat it in your master's program. Yeah. So did you guys have to do a full blown research project? Yes. Um, I I actually I actually went to a school that had a had a had a dean who was who was actually supported the practice side more than the academic side. We averaged uh, two papers no two point five papers a semester. So some semesters we'd have four and others we'd have two. That's it for for the entire coursework. Not not I mean that includes my my theory course I had two papers my research course I had two papers. Chris, That's did it. you? Did you do um, – you had to go through IRB and get approvals and, and do data collection, analysis, all that stuff, reporting? No, well, so 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 part of that would be in the doctoral portion. For my for my class, what, what I had to do was essentially a literature review, come up with um, a hypothesis, whatever, send a, send a proposal to the IRB for school or whatever, like the schooled version of that. And then you'd yep. have to get approval or not based on that. And then you'd have to, you know, use the literature and kind of project what you think would happen. That, that's kind of the, the idea of what we did. So my, my program, as an example of wasting our time, 
I spent more time for a year dicking around with two IRBs, getting approvals, creating a, a document that could be, um, you know, a questionnaire, collecting data, analyzing data, running the statistics, which I did by hand, to make sure it's right because I'm SPSS, yeah, and this was for an, an MSN. So while I'm doing that, so, John, you can understand why, you know, for I probably spent 400 hours of a year of time on a research project that was completely moot to practice. Yeah. See, here's no, I didn't, I didn't have to do all that. From a, from a research standpoint, um, you need to understand how to, how to read and interpret research and how to, how to determine whether or not a study is, is a good study or not. And, and that's I what agree. we should be doing. That's what, we, that's what we need to be focusing on, right? And so, and so yeah. the performance of said research is not, I mean, can we do it? Absolutely, 100%. Can you understand the process? Absolutely, 100%. But that's not what the focus needs to be, right? I mean, even in, to me, even from a clinical, clinical doctoral standpoint, it's more about the interpretation of said research than yep. doing said research, right? Can you yeah. do said research with a master's? Absolutely. Can you do said research with a doctorate? Absolutely. But the problem is right now we don't have a clinical doctorate. There is no clinical yeah, is. endpoint. Is problem. There is no there. For instance, I don't I don't know how you guys do in, in your in your clinic, but when I did family practice, I'd interpret my own X-rays, right? Yeah. No, I don't. I, I don't there's have. No, there's no, there's no recourse for that. Here's the other thing. Do you look at your own X-rays? I wish I could get them. That's something everybody should do. Period. Because radiologists miss stuff. Yep. I can't yeah. tell you how many times I've caught something that the radiologist has missed and because I've actually physically examined the patient and and done the H and P, whereas they get a, a picture with uh, a belly pain or constipation complaint, and that's all they have to go off of. Yeah, I just, I I just had a guy with some uh, CTCN said constipation. I saw him, hit positive strike, sent him to surgery, and uh, made a phone call to the ER, and boom, kind of hours later. And and that's, that's it's a problem, right? And if right. you don't understand the the concepts and don't understand how to interpret those things, I mean, you don't, you don't have to be an expert, but you need to understand what the what the key points are when you're looking at X-rays. And right. a course on that would be exquisitely beneficial. A rotation looking at X-rays would be exquisitely beneficial to everyone. So, I, so one of the questions were the responses to me saying we need more pathophysiology, more um, pharmacology, and assessment and less of those waste of time classes um, was we need to do rotations in every topic like the PAs do. So what would, John, the, the model that I see, and I agree with you that we should, you know, if, if somebody said to me, Jeff, your FNP program, instead of being 700 hours of clinical experience, we're going to tack on another thousand to it. It's going to take you another year, but you're going to do these rotations through. I would have jumped at that and paid for another year school. Okay. Here's the yeah. thing, though. You, I, I don't think we need to add on that, that amount of time, right? There's a huge significant difference in the way that we do our clinical versus the way that the PAs do, right? The PAs, uh, their model is they do didactic for the first year, and then the second year is all clinical with testing in between, right? The nursing model, we start doing clinicals right away even before you have the foundation in place, right? 
we can still do that, right? We could start doing clinicals from the get-go. The problem is, is you have to find your own clinicals, and that's a whole other that's a whole other conversation. Where yeah. you're, if if we mandate that the schools find these find these sites for you, then it'll make it'll make being going through school that much easier because you've already got these things lined up. Now you may have to travel to get to one of their sites. Right, but it's available for you. So back to the money because I that, it keeps being a circular logic for me. <laughs> All right, and it keeps going back that cycle because it goes back to the money. So in reality, if today I was to go into any of the local NP programs that are in my area, and there's like five of them within you know I can throw wow. a rock in, in in different directions. So we're saturated here. If I were to go to any one of those programs, none of them provide the clinical site. No. All right? Because they don't so, have to. Because they don't have to. And the, and the hard part is, is as a student, I had to beg. I had to, you know, my brothers are physicians, so I, I, I said, I need help, man. I need a clinical site. And he just called one of his buddies and got it done. So, I, you know, I had that in. Um, but it was difficult. So that being said, a school going from, Okay, now we have more clinical hours, more clinical rotations. We have more to manage, more to deal with, and we're not going to make any more money doing it. They're not going to do it. Well, yeah, here's the thing. That's why it needs to be. That's why it needs to be mandated, right? Um, right. The second part is is you don't you don't have to you don't you don't have to lose money on that, right? From a school perspective, if I'm if I'm providing clinical sites for you, I'm going to charge you more to do that, right? Or I can charge you a rate. And then I can contract and pay these people to be uh, to, to be a clinical site, okay? And that way I have that availability, and that actually is a direct pass through. So you're not really losing. Is it going to increase the cost to the student to go? Yes. The other uh, other side effect of this is it's going to reduce the number of NP programs, which is yeah, something we that. need to do drastically. That's okay? what I agree with that Drastically too. needs to happen. And and I think that the number of students we have 30, 28 people in my class. And in my area, there's five or six six schools. If you go a little further away, in, in, in northern Ohio, there's probably 15 or 20, not including online. Right. And so, the, the flip side of that is, is if we don't protect our protect our profession, it's going to be oversaturated. And when it's oversaturated, it affects everyone's everyone's salary. And then you just don't have people who have jobs. I mean, you look on Facebook post the other day. Some lady was talking. I just can't find a job. Been out for two years, can't find a job. Well, that's their own fault. There's a reason. Yeah, yeah. There is. There is. There is that. I'm not, not going not to argue. But there are. There are areas that are heavily saturated. There are. Heavily and saturated. Here's the deal. Where I came from in the engineering world, I made it through 2001 with the downturn of the economy. In, in engineering world, it was a huge drop when everything went to Homeland Security. Okay. Right. Um, so there was a huge downturn back then. And then in 2008, with the housing boom and all that stuff, the huge downturn then. I lived through civil engineering through both of those downturns. And so I can tell you that the number of job postings for NPs dwarfs that. I mean, there was nothing. I mean, you'd be lucky to find one person remotely interested in you as an engineer through the 2000s. Right. And so, I get that. I get that. But here's not that side is if we continue pumping out at the rate we are, it's gonna it's it's gonna be a problem. And the I, other thing we have right now is we have a massive, massive, massive nursing shortage, right? 
Right. And how is that an NP problem? Well, technically it's not, but here's the issue, right? If we make people wait a year or two before they go into practice to apply for NP school, and this is not a popular idea, but if we do that, we retain a little bit at the nursing level. Okay, all these people, there's a lot of people who are just going straight through and not ever working as a nurse, right? And one of the advantages or previous advantages to hiring an NP versus a PA is they have actual clinical experience, okay? That's one of the things that used to differentiate us when we were going out looking for a job. Hey, I've already been in the clinical setting. I understand how it is to work in a clinical setting. Now, I have not worked in this role yet, but I understand what it is, and I have the unique advantage of being able to bridge knowledge between the nurses and us. Right. That, okay. that, Which that, is that, something that, that nobody else can do. There's no other profession that can bridge that knowledge gap and yeah. understands. like, you'll walk in the surgeon's lounge the other day, and one of the surgeons bitching about one of the nurses, how could they not possibly know that? Well, dude, they didn't go to medical school. They're not right. going to know that. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting there like, dude, they, they don't understand. They don't know. Well, how? I don't understand. They didn't have gross anatomy lab? No, they didn't have a gross anatomy lab. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? I mean, they had an anatomy class. Right. But they didn't dissect and he just had no concept of that because they, there's no understanding of the training, right? That's a good point. And from the other side of that, I, I as a nurse, I see you. I much prefer talking to the nurse practitioners than going to the attendings. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, we're yeah, sure. Because I can yeah. fuck, you know, here's this, you know, this person here has been a, a crazy, you know, just all over the place with, you know, delirium from ICU delirium. Yeah, right. can, I, can I get five milligram held off, you know? And they'll be like, yeah. yeah, let's just not get him some sleep. So, I mean, there, there was some of that that was a little bit more, you know, approachability. And so yeah. is that yeah. value in, in, in the hundred percent yes, right? If you look at uh, um, order sets, right, that are developed by nurse practitioners, there's a lot more quality of life implements on the order sets, i.e., antacid of choice, uh, uh, laxative of choice, um, you'll have automatically have antiemetics, antipyretics, um, right. analgesics on there, right? Not necessarily opioid analgesics, but an, an analgesic, right? And that's learned from us being on the floor, being on the unit, knowing that, hey, I'm going to need this later. Um, this guy is not going to sleep. For Tylenol. Right, exactly. Exactly. We don't, I, I hated calling people in the middle of the night. I really did not want to wake people up. And, and you know, when you, when you have to go through that on that side of it and wake people up and get screamed at for a Tylenol um, because you have to, that, that makes it so much easier as a provider to say, you know what, let's build the runway a little bit longer so we can land this plane. Exactly. Exactly. And it, it makes it makes quality of life. It just becomes a better thing. And, you know, you as a, as a provider understand those requirements and what's needed. So I can tell you that why the nurses like calling the NPs better, because they're not going to get bitched at at 3 a.m. Right. At 3 a.m., I'm going to go, okay, do I need to come up there, or can you handle it if we just do that? Okay. Right. All right. Well, let me know. Right. Yeah. And then go back to that. So, but one of the things I, I was I'm hanging up on a little bit, John, and I just would try to clarify your thoughts on it was, so if if 
I was, walk me through functionally, me as a nurse practitioner, uh, student getting my FNT in your, your concept of what it should be. So I'm, I'm going to try to do my best to explain it and see if I deviate because I, I, I want to make sure I understand it. Okay. So I would, I would go through day one, I show up, say hi, get my name badge, and um, start my clinical experience then as well Absolutely. as my my didactic learning that would be contemporaneous at the same time with that, which I agree with, I would be doing my clinical setting, I would be doing my didactic, I would pare down a lot of my uh, advanced practice role type classes, pare down some of these programs have over-the-top research and theory, pare those down, um, and, and do that for a, a two-year period, but then when would when would you say this the the doctorate component of the clinical would that be? I graduate with my MSN in FNP, and then I apply for almost a residency ship, yeah. um, get my additional clinical hours in, say, dermatology, or my my additional hours in orthopedics or acute care, or how would you distinguish that? Would well, you... I would, I, I, to be honest with you, I, th I think we have roles pretty well predefined right now that are actually pretty good, okay? So, so when acute care acute cares a pre is, is great, the ENP is great, the um, uh, uh, neonatologist, the certified nurse midwife, all that is good. I think we could probably roll the PNP and the, the uh, women's health NP into the base FNP course. I agree. Yes, the psych can definitely go into there for sure. Okay, mm -hmm. and, and psych, and we need to roll psych in there too. That's another thing that's becoming yep. an issue, right? Or we could add psych as a doctoral specific role. If you wanted to go on and get that. Yeah, but, but right. so I guess that's what, what I would almost desire. Now, this is probably, you know, shooting for the moon. I would love to be invited to study for, get clinical experience for, and take the same medical certification board that they do. Well, I, yeah. I get that. I get that. But the, here's the problem, right? The problem is, is our coursework is not designed for their tests. Right. No, so, and that's the problem. So um I I don't I don't think we I don't think we need to shoot there. I think we need to deviate and make our own our, our own deal is okay, right? I, I and I disagree with recertifying every five years too. I think that's just ludicrous. I think the amount of CME that you put in should be sufficient. If you look at all these all these uh organizations now are trying to get away from recertifying every five years because all it is is a fifteen hundred, eighteen hundred dollar bolus for whatever organization you're paying as opposed to I'd rather just give them the money and turn in my CMEs and be done, right? So if you look at if if we have a base a base, a strong base, right, and we're sitting at um fifteen hundred, let's say fifteen hundred to two thousand hours in our in our base course, whatever we want to call it, right? N T family, whatever you want to call it, okay? That sets us up well because that's the that's the that's the number of clinical hours the PAs do, right? And then if we set up our doctoral with another four thousand hours, right, that puts us at a base of six thousand hours of clinical time prior to um working if you get your doctoral first, right? Now I think we need to move away from the term D N T because it's it's too academic in the way it's set up and there'd be no way to grandfather these people in because they're not going to have the additional uh clinical training, so we'd have to come up with another moniker for the doctoral portion. Um, uh, in the doctorate, you could put it in ED or something like that. Okay. Or in something like that. 
or just an ND, nursing doctorate. That'd be okay, too, right? I don't care what the terminology that you come up with would be okay for that either way, but then you're sitting at 6,000 hours plus. If you have two years of nursing experience prior to be able to get even get into your master's, right, that's another 4,000 hours there of clinical time that you've trained. Now, it's not trained in an advanced role, but it is training that you've done, right? And that doesn't include the clinical time you've actually trained for that, which would put us pretty close to 12,000, 13,000 hours of training when it comes down to brass tacks. Right. Now, would, would you consider the additional 4,000 doctorate hours, would that be a paid type thing? You'd have to, like, apply, get the position, to be doing the job that you would be training for? And get that's, done that's, up how, that's, that's how I put it, yeah. That's, that's, that's how, how I put it. Because in reality, there's not going to be anyone in their right mind that would be able to take three, four, four almost five years of their life and um, be able to dedicate that without a paycheck. Yeah, yeah I agree with absolutely. you. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. And here's the thing, right? When you're doing those those extra 4,000 hours as B&P level, it would be essentially a residency. You have you have a clinical staff that you're that you're is over you, right? So you're you're working. For instance, let's use the ER as an example because it's an easy example to use, right? When you're in the ER, you have a doc who's over you during this during your doctoral phase, or an NP if you're in a full practice authority state, whichever. Okay, and then you also have a clinical. You also have an academic portion you have to complete. I.e., you know what the the Bible is for emergency medicine? I have no idea. The Bible like for emergency, emergency ten, medicine is ten dollars or some junk. Yeah, that's ten, ten, ten nellies. Yeah, ten nellies is is emergency medicine Bible, right? Mm-hmm. So during this time, you learn the you your first year you go through the book one time. Your second year you go through the book a second time, and you test on that book as you go. Okay. In order to get your doctorate, that's to me is a clinical doctorate. And during that time, should you need additional. Your instructor says, "Hey, you're you're pretty weak on your X-rays. I'm I need you to spend an extra hundred hours in in a, 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 with a radiologist. And here's our radiologist. I want you to go sit with. Right. Okay. Okay. There may be additional things that you have to do on your days off in order to get it done. Just like in your masters, where you can work full time and go to school, but it's gonna it, it's it's gonna be worth sacrifice, right? And I would love to have that type of program. I'm, I'm not gonna lie to you. That would be fantastic. Um, how do we get this done? I, I mean, in, in reality, that, that what I think everybody out there that's in the ether listening to this is like, yes, sign me up for that program. I think we all would agree to get to there. But there's going to be a lot of people on the other side, and other side meaning academia, that's not going to be willing to change because they're either already making plenty of money doing it the way they're doing it, and they don't really care what the end game is. Except for today, they want to uh, I think, uh, to be honest with you guys, I think that uh, I, think, I think I think the end result of this conversation is is in order to get there, in order to get invited to the table, we're going to have to have a backing, right? We're going to have to have an organization in order to do that. I don't think that our current organizations are willing or able or care to do this. And I think there's been such a divergence between academia and the actual practice that we need a group to pull that back together. We need a, a, a 
American College of Nurse Practitioners, right? We need it bad. And I don't know if that moniker has been taken or been used, but we need an American College of Advanced Practice Nurses, a group that actually supports the practice side of what we do and is focused on making us the absolute best that we can be. Absolutely. Right? From yeah. an educational standpoint, as, even as far as basis from an educational standpoint, right? And I think that if we don't do that, we're putting our stuff, we're, 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 it's a disservice not only to us, but to the students, to the professors, to the universities, and to the patients. For yeah. sure. I mean, that, that should be the first one. I mean, in yeah, reality. Patients. Yeah, patients. It really should be. Because there's, there's plenty of people, I'll see the Facebook posts out there, and I'm like, this person doesn't, they're, they're not a nurse practitioner, and they're just trying to get information on something. And then you go look at their, their profile, and they're like, oh, no, they graduated from an NT school. And you look yeah. at them, and you're like, I can't believe you just typed those words. Let, let me ask you, here's, here's, here's one perfect example, and I'm going to give you, that is, is going to be beneficial to everybody who's listening. But I want you to know, and don't Google, just think, what are the top three reasons for an elevated white count? This is something everybody should know, right? Give a second. You guys don't have to answer. Okay, look it up. <laughs> okay. Number got, one is infection, right? Infection? Yeah. Pregnancy? Yeah, infection? No. 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 Cancer? No. 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 <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> Infection, bleeding, and trauma. Those are your top three reasons for an elevated Y count, period. That's well, I don't think Those problem. are the top three reasons for an elevated Y count. Okay? All right. That's not all the things that can cause an elevated Y count, but those are the top three reasons, right? Now, for instance, what are the top three reasons for an elevated BU in normal crabs? First one's dehydration. dehydration. Second one is? G GI bleed. Huh. Those are the top two reasons for an elevated BUN normal creatinine. Okay. Yeah. The problem yeah. is people are graduating and just don't know it. And, uh, and that those are neither of those tidbits of, of, of love there were ever even remotely pro provided to me. And so, that's the problem. And here's another thing. How much time did you spend on laboratory interpretation? Um, yeah. Not but here's here's my tip on that, and, and I get frustrated with people that say, interpret these labs for me, and and they don't understand the pathophysiology behind them. So yeah. that's why I say we need to know the pathophysiology more than we need to know, quote-unquote, lab interpretation, because it's all pathophysiology. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know what? If you if you have if you have uh, if you understand the pathophysiology, you'll get there on the lab. And sometimes you just need somebody to draw a map, right? And I get that, but that should be done whilst you're in school. And That's the right. problem is, is it's not. I mean, you've got, I mean, I love those questions the the white count and the BU and creatinine. And I use it on all my students because they never know. And fortunately, Google, Dr. Google hasn't hasn't provided the answers yet. So. Hopefully nobody will put it out there. So I'll put it out there. Make it easy for my students. It's going on my website. Know, it's, uh, it, these are things that we should know when, when you walk out the door, right? But instead, we're, I mean, and I, I hate to do this, but instead we're, we're focused on the opioid crisis, which we didn't create, um, but is being blamed on us now. And there's, it's so bad that students are afraid to write prescriptions for pain medicines, people who need pain medicines. You know, and yeah. they're also afraid to write antibiotics for people that need antibiotics. 
Right. You know, I mean, so I'm gonna because that. the antibiotic issue as yes. well, but that's a whole different conversation. I'm gonna, you know, I'm we're focusing on, on political issues versus actual scientific problems. That's the problem right there. And I'm going to confess that, that the, the DEA and the Ohio Board of Nursing and the Ohio Board of Pharmacy is so far up our shorts about opiates that yeah. I'm not even going to touch it. It's just not worth me being on the radar. It's just not. I'm vocal enough against the Board of Nursing. I don't need another reason for ammunition. <laughs> so, so the, the, I heard there is that sometimes, um, you know, there are people that walk into my office and I'm like, dude, I really wish I could just throw some, some narcotics at you and make this go away for a little bit because I know it's an acute issue. It's going to go away. It's not chronic. And I want to make you more comfortable. But I, it's just not worth it. Yeah. And I, yeah. I have to send the ER where it is more acceptable to do that. And it, in, in our current Even, even the, the, the ER students that I have are afraid to write narcotics. And I, and I don't know necessarily know if it's so much a fear um, as it is. It's just not worth it. No, 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 no. It, it's a literal fear. They're like, oh, are, we, are we are we allowed to do that? Really? Why? I mean, they're saying we really should probably avoid narcotics at all costs. I don't, you know, they like getting in a sweat and a tizzy about it. Yeah. Now, some of the some of that is keep in mind that the educational system is what drives a lot of that. When I was in nursing oh, school, undergrad, I was told. You know, pain is the, the fifth vital sign, and, and you know what? We, we have to make sure that well. I remember hammering people with, with morphine like and pounding them with fentanyl and, and didn't think twice of it when I was in the ICU. And then I get out in private in a private practice, and it's like, holy crap, tramadol, holy crap, I can't get that, you know? Oh, yeah. You know, so some of it is, I think, um, the, the, the bad apples have rotted the, the bunch. Oh, absolutely. That's a big issue, you know, and I, I'd love to – I mean, we could talk for hours. I, we really could. Well, we have to keep it limited, I think. Yeah, uh, we need to focus. We need to refocus. We're getting, yeah. we're getting off track. Our time is delayed. It's where like 1.15 or something, and, and that might be getting big for uploading on podcast time. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I didn't think about it. We may have to, may, I might have to split it up. I might you know, do it. Let's do this. Let's, do this, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's go ahead and, and end the podcast for today. And if we get enough interest, we'll do a follow-up and then maybe discuss doing uh, forming an organization to tackle the actual practice issues and education issues that nobody wants to take on. So let's let's do some marching orders of like uh, and, and with my legal background, I have no problem donating time to to help develop bylaws and organizational structures and filings and things like that. None of this is free, however, when we start doing that. So I wouldn't hesitate to use my platform. I've got some revenue coming in from that. Uh, and, and if this is the case that, you know, I could utilize some of the NPD's revenue to help this process, I'm perfectly cool with that. So um, if, if that's something that my listenership wants to help with, you guys can go. I swear to God, I'll be transparent. In, well, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's not even do that, Jeff. I don't want to pull from that. If we're going to go, if people want us to do this and try and fix this, we need to create an organization. We need to start having membership dues, and I don't mind pitching in for the – for the initial cost of all that stuff, and so we can't we can't uh, get that and use the membership dues to help. I mean, I've, I've had multiple PMs from people saying, "Hey, sign me up!" Right? So, so well, if we can get a big enough potential for that, then it's something we could do. But we've got to have backing for it. You know, if our viewers, if the listeners want it, we'll do it. One other thing, real quick, before we sign off, is that I guess I want to focus our attention on nurse practitioners rather than 
midwives, CNSs, and yeah, I and, agree with that. Uh, because the one thing the consensus model I think does do correctly is separate those four. Absolutely. It's, Breakdown of the, the end case. So I think that if there's a CRNA that's out there listening and wants to be involved in this, I, I would consider their input. But I'm not sure I would be the right guy to represent them. Absolutely. Yeah. So, 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 so I, I guess for clarity. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree on that. I think I think one of the things that we need to do before we even come up with an organization or whatever, even a name for that, I think it would be totally appropriate for us to – just come up with a closed Facebook group and then somehow link all of this to that so that we can see, hey, how much traction can we really get prior to coming up with an organization, you know, and get input from other people. And it's free. Yeah, it's free. We can do that as a platform. We can we could do, uh, you know, poll the audience type of questions and see which way people are feeling if it's clearly one way versus the other. We could use that to help guide model legislation as well. I think it's a great idea. That that sounds like probably the best way to go. But we can talk offline about how we want to do that, what we're going to call it, and that kind of stuff. But I, I just want to thank you guys. I am so excited to be a part of this community with you guys and just smart guys that are that are trying to get it done. I'd like to have some female representation in this. I mean, it, it just happens to be that it's three guys talking today. But I know multiple people that um, – you know, to, to just be, and I hate diversity. I hate diversity, and I'm going to say it because of a specific reason. Diversity is more exclusive than it is inclusive. Okay, um, and what I mean is, if if um, if I set parameters on, we need X number of females, X number of this type of race or that race. I, I don't care. I could care less what you are, who you are. If you've got smart ideas and you want to participate, please participate. So that's yeah, why I, I do it that. that way. I agree but with it's that. Just, it's, I hope that, that you know, we're, we're a minority here and, and we're together talking, and I just don't want people to think, oh, well, it's those three guys that are trying to take over the world. That's not really, I mean, we are, don't get me wrong, but it's not an exclusivity thing. So if there's somebody yeah. out there that wants to be involved in the next discussion on this, I don't care, PM me your phone number and we'll get you on the hook, right? So, yeah, um, um, and I do want to I say do. one other thing. I want to say one other thing because I think that there will be some, some – People on the other end of however they're going to listen to this, and they're going to say, oh, these three dudes are just sitting around. They're super sour, and they're just they're, – they're not, they're not grateful for the nurse practitioners that have come before us. And I want to say I'm super thankful for every nurse practitioner that did come before us that paved the way for us to even be able to have this conversation. But the reality is we see some problems, and we're trying to – improve on that so that other people can stand on top of our shoulders, you know, at the, at the end of the day. So. I agree with that 100%. And, and not only does it do, if, if we do this, we we take away the voice and the arguments of our detractors. That's right. Yeah. And if if you do this, if we if we actually get this done and this becomes the standard, then what happens is the, detra- the detracting voices go away because it's just not there. Right. And, that opens up the path for full practice authority, which is what the end game is for all these yeah, um, the groups yeah. and organizations, right? And the problem yeah. is, is that I think that we just have been we we've, we've got our vision so narrowed that we're we're focused on one thing and that's it. And 100% agree, we probably should limit this to NPs because that's what we're, our our group is. But and, and we're not because I can't I can't speak for the midwives or the CRNAs or anybody like that at all. 
what the if we could just almost unplug the NP portion of the of the uh, consensus model, revamp that section, and then plug us back in. Yeah, I'd be good. That, that would be okay. And the other part, though, we have to make sure the educational educational aspect of it is up to par with what we need in order to remove the detractable statements, right? 